Hey guys, welcome to another edition of the Detour. It's a special edition because it's the first of our off-season series. And we <laughs> at the end of the last show, we're going to have a bit of a break and that lasted one day and we're back. <laughs> And you've, got me, and you've got me on again still. That's good. So I'm happy to be uh, hanging on your coattails, boys. Ah, no worries at all, mate. Uh, that's what we do. It's a very <laughs> inclusive show. Uh, Johnny, what can you say about our very special guest tonight? Well, we've got Adam Hansen, who I reckon would be one of the most interesting guys in the peloton. Uh, and we're about to hear if he's going to be in the peloton or just out of the peloton. But, yeah, he's been around for a long time, going right back to the days of the Crocodile Trophy, an event that I worked on the first one, so I've got to, I have, to have a yap with him about that. Um, and as we know, he's got the record holder, 20 consecutive Grand Tours, which is mind-boggling. I can remember when Steve-O did three and, and he... And how, everyone thought how hard that was. Well, Adam's done 20. And stage winner, uh, Vuelta, and uh, also in the Giro. Uh, and one of the real characters of cycling. So let's talk to him. All right. Here he is. Adam Hansen joins us live from the Czech Republic. Mate, thanks for coming on the detour. How do you feel now that uh, 2020's done and dusted, as they say in the classics? Oh, very relaxed. It's a bit of a relief. A lot of weight off my shoulders, which is, um, yeah, it's super nice, actually. Um, it's a it's an amazing career. Um, we should probably talk about 2020 first. Uh, all the writers that we've spoken to on this show have, have openly shown that it has cooked them. Um, the racing's been hard, obviously the pandemic. How did you find this year compared to the other seasons that you competed in? Yeah, no, not so hard, actually. Um, I had a lot of spare time on my, on my hands. Um, <laughs> we didn't do so much racing, in fact, so it was, it was kind of easy in that sense. Um, yeah, well, actually, it wasn't so difficult. Uh, yeah, I was a bit surprised when you said a lot of riders that they cook themselves. Iffy, you're, you're you're based in the Czech Republic, so I keep thinking Czechoslovakia because that's what it was what it was the last time I was there. <laughs> but um, what's what's the situation like with the the COVID situation in Czech? But the start is very good. We were one of the best countries. <clears throat> um, but we enforced masks at the very start. So basically when when it hit Italy very hard in uh, late February, March, we were the first countries to have full lockdown. So we had almost zero cases. Um, and then we were the first countries to open up. And that was a kind of a, a good and a bad thing. And then now we're one of the, the worst hit countries in the EU. So things are not so good here at the moment. Oh, uh, really? Uh, yeah. It's it's looking terrible, isn't it? Um, and then this we we've mentioned a few times with some of the riders. We had Rory Sutherland on, also Mitch Docker just a couple of days ago, and George Bennett. And um, everyone seems to be preparing for twenty twenty one as if it's going to be a normal season. But I'm just not sure everybody really understands that this may not be a normal year again next year. We, the first few races of the season may not get off the ground at all. You know, what are your thoughts on, on just where Europe is at the moment collectively and how that relates to what may or may not happen at the start of next season? Yeah, exactly right. The second wave already is much harder than the first wave. If you look at the numbers, look at the deaths, um, it's, you know, there's like uh, in our country we've had, like our country is a bad example because we were, we were so good at the, at the first wave, but our country has like almost five times the amount of infection rate per day um, compared to a start, a lot of the other countries are having double um, or or having records, and 
you know, entering winter, which is worse because a lot of people spend a lot more time inside. Um, so, you know, social distancing is even more difficult in them and people more prone to get sick in the winter. And the winters here are a lot harder than, than in Australia, for example. So, you know, we already know, um, you know, uh, Kid 11's um, Tour Down Under, you know, these races are already cancelled. Um, UAE might go forward. It's not so bad there. But I don't know. It could be, you know, I was reading news last night that vaccines are, you know, there's two companies that are super close in the vaccine um, in the news last night. So, you know, that may be, that could change things. But, yeah, at the moment, yeah, something so positive. Yeah. Um, obviously, the COVID's been a big talking point for protocols at races. The last race you did was the Giro. How did you find the COVID protocols? Because we had a lot of um, mixed messages on, you know, they weren't doing enough at hotels and things like that. Yeah, well, uh, these bubbles was a bit of a joke in my opinion. Like, um, like for example, like you know, you would do you know terrainal, then you do Giro, but then you have different riders that do terrainal, and some of those riders at other races where we have like three bubbles in our team, where the riders always change across to different bubbles, and then you go home and um, you're with your family, and most riders' wives don't work, so they spend time at home, but the kids go to school, so you know this wasn't so good. But then you know during at a race. You know, you do have like the Swaniers and Swaniers go shopping, for example, and then they sort of come back and then, um, you know, they, they've sort of, you know, mixing with other people. And then when they're at the feed zone, they're all talking to all the other Swaniers. So, yeah, it, like it was enforced pretty good. Um, but, you know, there were some hotels where we had other guests staying at the hotels. So I was just, I don't know, it was like, it was... It was good. It wasn't perfect, but it's difficult to make it perfect, if you know what I mean, because we're not in a stadium. It's not like the NBA finals, how they really put everyone in a bubble and no one could leave, no one could enter, and um, everyone just was remained inside. So, you know, you can't complain too much what they did. Yeah, look, I, I think they were, they were learning on the move, weren't they? From all accounts, oh, exactly. the, the, the Vuelta got it pretty right. You know, they kept... Well, a lot of teams in one hotel as much as they could. They, were, you know, they took the crowd, the, the, the fans right out of the equation. Uh, so they seemed to you know, get it better and better. I mean, I didn't think they'd get to Madrid with that way things go, but they did it uh, uh, quite easily. So obviously they were learning. And I think that's going to be the only way the season's going to happen uh, uh, next year. It's going to be uh, a television event. They're not going to be uh, inviting guests along for, the, for those early season classics to even think about happening. Um, yeah, exactly right. Adam, obviously a big talking point at the Giro was the protest. Um, can you give us a bit of insight what led up to the protest before stage 19? Um, there's a, um, a CPA, CPA delegate there, obviously, and a CPA uh, group, and all CPA communications through um, Telegraph. And um, I know in the media they were sort of joking about, like, they use Telegraph. But Telegraph's used because it's the only form of communication where your identity is not shown. And we use this as a platform because, you know, WhatsApp or um, uh, well, WhatsApp, for example, you need your phone number to be registered. And anyone who's on, on WhatsApp, they can see person's phone number. So, for example, you know, Chris Froome is there. 
he probably doesn't want his phone number to be released to a lot of the other guys in the peloton. He wants to keep private. So this is why Telegraph was used. And um, I was actually, uh, because like I'm, I'm working in the CPA, but I wasn't working at the Giro as a CPA um, member. And basically what happened was, is they were discussing about shortening the stage because it was way too long um, and the weather was bad and they wanted a belt. So I was um, called in. Um, so I signed up in the group, I think, um, very late evening, the, the night before the race. And they'd been chatting about it for a long time. And they wanted to have a belt. So uh, I had to, and not every rider was in that group. Uh, sorry, not every uh, team had a rider in that group. So I made sure that we had enough riders from the teams to be put in that group. And then, yeah, the teams bolted and the majority um, did not want to start and have the start a lot later. Um, and this is mainly because mainly because of hotels. You know, like a lot of people are complaining, especially in the media, um, were saying that, you know, we knew the race months before and things like that. That's true. That's very true. But we did not know the transfers before. And we mm. did not know that we had to get up at 6, 6.30 every morning, five days in a row. And we get to hotels like 10, 10.30 at night. And we're in bed at like 1 o'clock in the mornings every night. These are the things we didn't know. And also the fatigue and everything. And, you know, by the time the race came on, it was sort of like, yeah, but why are we doing this race? Like, how is it? You know, we, we, we know as cyclists, this type of stage would be the most boring stage on TV. No one wanted to be in the break. It's way too long. And then the bridge collapsed and they had to make the, the stage a lot longer. And then one of the mayors didn't want the race to go through his town because it would um, destroy his tourism. So it was even longer. So it was two times as longer. And this happened like three days prior. So, you know, the race came along and we're just thinking, you know, no one's going to go on the break. So probably just all ride super slow together. Maybe one or two guys would go and then we'll just cruise and it won't race. And then we thought, if it's shorter, we'll race, we'll get to the finish line and we'll put a show on. And then it rained and this just put things worse. So it was super cold and, you know, it's different when you're going up and down mountains in the cold because when you go up mountains, you're kind of warm and down you just have to because when you're going up, the pelt's on split, so you're trying to get back. Um, so on this particular pan pancake black day, it was like cold, it was way too long. And it was, and we 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 voted not to do it, and this was presented, and um, it didn't really go through. So basically, at the start line, I was all prepared, and I went um, to sign on. And sign on was so far away from the buses, so you had to ride five k there. Sign on. I had to go back to the buses because I forgot. Well, I, I didn't have enough time to get ready, so I had to go back and get my radio and some um, some food. So I went back. And I went back to the straight line. So very young, fifteen k. And back to the um, the start line, no one's there, right? And it was like one or two minutes before the start line. So then um, I look, see what's happening. Everyone's at the podium. So I go to the podium and it's raining. Everyone's underneath the tent and they were calling me in and like, ah, oh, we don't want to start and, you know, this is not right and look at the weather and that. So I thought, okay, then I know the organizer, being organized over. I, I speak to Regni and he was like, yep, okay, uh, we change it. But we've got to see with the new CI. Like, he was, like, fully supportive, fully supportive. Really? Actually, no, I've always supported him. I've said he's always been a reasonable guy. <laughs> yeah, <turn> coke. <laughs> oh, mate, we used to call him Joe Pesci. Um, but okay. anyway, that's, that's another story. 
So yeah. he 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 agreed to it, or he I'm didn't. Saying. Yeah, because that's not how I come across in the media. I, the so, way I come across yeah. in the media is that you were the one that led this, and that people were going, "Oh, hang on, you know why the writers complain about? You know, they knew in advance and all this sort of stuff." Even your GM, uh, John Lelang, he distanced himself from you guys and, and sided with the RCS. Um, I don't know about you, but that would have pissed me off, you know, because at the end of the day, like we've said it on this show as well, the sports entertainment, you know, why do they have these 260K stage? No one on TV wants to be watching, as you said, like a breakaway that goes, it's punting along. It, it's it's not thinking of what the sport is, which is entertainment. There's got to be that balance, you know. Um, so when, when you did uh, have your chat to Venny, what happened after that? Yeah, then the UCI came in because Benny said that the UCI must must approve it. So then um, we had the commissaire. Commissaire was like, no, it's not possible. And uh, he had a bit of a whinge. And then Benny and the UCI went around and spoke um, uh, by themselves. Then I thought it's best I go over there too, which is a mistake I made because when I was standing there, that's when I was calling the media. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it looked like me and the UCI was that. And then... They said, okay, what we do is it's a start town, so we're starting the start town. We'll do a loop and then we'll hop in our buses. And then and then he was like, are all the team buses here? And this is the second mistake I did. I went to the tent where every rider was there. And by this time, the race has already started. So no one was, no one started. So no rider willingly started. If they wanted to, they could have been at the start line, but no one wanted to race. So I said, is everyone's buses here? Everyone was like, yeah. And then I said, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to start, do a loop back to the buses, and then we're going to ride, uh, drive uh, 100 kilometers and then restart the race. Everyone cheering. Now, the mistake I made was I should have said, does anyone not want to start today? And then hear a full yes and say, and who wants to start can go to the start line. The race will start now and watch no one go out there. And then I go, okay, so we're all together. Good. So uh, everyone's buses here. And they do it this way. Because what happened afterwards, you know, as you saw with FA Jura and that, they were like, yeah, but we were there and we were ready to race and no one wanted to and things like that. And this is sort of where, you know, if you want to change topics from a CPA to the new riders union and things like that, is this is where the riders are actually scared of the teams. Because it's hard mm. for a rider to go back into the bus and the team's like, why aren't you racing? What's going on? And then the teams go, oh, uh, yeah, well, they didn't want to race, so we, we were not racing. And it was cancelled. And and Adam led the – Adam made it not happen. And and I didn't get everyone to acknowledge it, to be understanding. So the riders – some of the riders are like this. And, and, with, and I understand. I understand riders are scared of teams. They don't have contracts. The teams are the bosses. No teams want difficult riders, you know, so you have all these elements that come into it also. So from this side, I, I, I totally understand from the riders' point of view that, they're, you know, they're afraid of their teams, they're afraid of their jobs, they're afraid of the contracts and things like that. And then some of this got into the media. And then you're right, um, John, he didn't support me at all. Um, and then John Lefebvre, uh, Lefebvre um, from uh, Quickstep, he had a go at John also in the media saying, you know, you always stick by your riders. So, you know, it was nice to read Lefebvre's message. Um, I felt a bit sorry for what uh, John said to me. It was a bit of a, 
bit of a shame, but he's, you know, he's a, I understand he's the, the, the team boss and um, he has to make the organisers happy and, you know, he's got his job and, and it's very easy to point the finger and take the blame and I'm, I'm happy to take the blame. The thing that, um, you know, the, the only thing that concerned me a little is, you know, it was a big statement, well, it doesn't matter why we started or not, but it was a big statement that the riders stuck together and made a change on the morning of the race. Yes, it was late, but even at the morning of the race, we were able to make a change by sticking together so easy. And it really shows the power of the riders. And to me, this is the most important thing. So the mm. next day, I had a lot of riders um, come up and thank me, also the same stage, but especially next stage because it was um, warmer. And then even if they do ride it, came up to me and thanked me. And I said, yeah, but, you know, I read in the media that your team was not happy with the decision. He said, ah, yeah, but, you know, we said that we were dressed to race. I said, yeah, but in the media, dressed to race and wanting to race, you know, two totally different things because we're all dressed to race. And he goes, yeah, but I said, you know, and then he goes, yeah, but we are grateful. I said, you know what? For me, it's okay what you guys do. For me, working in the CTA, all the work I've been doing the last few years, this is not for me. This is for your younger generation. And this is what the younger generation never sees. The work that we do mm. is for the next two to five to seven years that dribbles down to your generation. And it's sad sometimes that we do a lot of work. We ask some requests from the younger generation. They never put their hand up. They're not interested. And, you know, it's like, this is not for me. 24 hours, I don't see another bike race again. So, you know, I don't mind doing this. But next time there's a problem, don't call mm. me. Yeah, don't call me. Well, <laughs> well what, what, where is it? Where is it at with the CPA and this new union? Because you've clearly demonstrated that you do have a voice and that you can work together and create some change. Um, how how do you see it moving forward uh, on with everything that's happening at the moment? Well, with the new union, this is complicated. A lot of things uh, with the CPA. You know, it, it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And the CPA does a lot of things. Um, and the, 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 the sad thing is the CPA is like, we, we have this lady working the CPA, Laura. She's, she's wonderful. And she's a bit like a mother in a sense, how she thinks for the riders. And, you know, we have a lot of problems. And she's like, just just don't tell the riders. Don't stress them with this. We can sort this out by ourselves. And, and, and she's like on that mentality. Um, and you know, but the, the 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 board members. So every national body has a, a board member. Um, they can send it to the send the information to the riders, and a lot of them do. A lot of them do. But the thing is, we do a lot for the riders. The riders are not even aware of. And this new C, this new sorry, new riders union has come in. You know, they're just looking at like um, you know making the the the, the courses more safety, more safer. <clears throat> um, all little things that are that are that we're also working on, but, you know, not to, the, not to the amount of other things that we're doing too. And this is a bit of a shame because the way I see it, they really do not have an idea how much work it is. And they're, they're really into the whole one rider, one vote, which is something that we want to do also. It's not so easy for the CPA to do one rider, one vote because we have these bylaws that are a bit against it. And the reason why we don't have the one rider, one rider, one vote is because of David Miller. Um, and what David Miller, uh, just as an example, is he came along, he wanted to run for president, 
And with the one right of one vote, he could have voted in and won. And this is not a problem at all. Uh, we have no problems changing presidency or things like this. But the problem is we had someone that wanted to really be part of the CPA, wanted to help the CPA come in, showed all the bad things and um, the bad things and the, the things we're not doing correctly, ran for president, lost, and then just disappeared. Now, my question is, if you really want to help the riders, where are you now? Like, did you just want to run for a presidency? Um, and if you didn't get it, like, there's no other job? Is it just that or nothing? And for this reason, we, we don't have the one rider, one vote for every single um, topic that comes up. We are changing it so um, because it's a request from the riders, but we have bylaws, so we've got to get through the bylaws to be able to change the system where we will have a one rider, one vote for majority of the of the task, um, where riders should have an opinion. Um, and we and I, I word it like should have an opinion because I think sometimes, like, I make choices for the Australian riders where they would just not understand what's happening. A lot of them are too young and, and they don't care. They just want to race their bike and get their money. And, I, and I'm doing it on the best of their behalf, that's for sure, 100%. And if it's something like I'm really torn apart and thinking, I oh, know some guys are not like that, then I ask them. But to run presidency, what we want to do is change in the bylaws, have something like, okay, you can run for presidency. It can be one right or one vote. However, you must be in the CPA for, we haven't decided if it's two years or three years, but you've got to be there sometime. You know, you've got to have some experience in the, like, like in any company, you've got to have some experience in the company, you've got to have experience how it works, you have to know all the people, you have to know the external factors. And the CPA has built up a really good relationship with the team, so we can go on the, the meetings with the teams. We, we have a foot in the door with the UCI. See, the, see the other rise unions like, yeah, but, you know, they're, they're, they're tied in with the UCI and where we're sort of like um, related in a sense. And like, that's true, but it's only true because when the UCI has a meeting, we have to have a member there to know what's happening. Now, if we didn't have this foot in the door, they would be having meetings. We'd have no idea about it. We'd read about the media, and the media is not always 100% right. And then we'll be like, well, um, okay, then we've got to make a decision based on, you know, cast the whispers. So the re that's the reason why we got someone in the UCI. And this took us years to get someone that was allowed to go to all the UCI meetings. Now, with, can the new writers' union do this? I highly think not because it took us so long and they're not going to have two union members being in there. And the other thing is, how are they going to get paid? Now, I know Luke, who's running it, and there's a few other guys that are looking for a job. I'm aware of that. And I think that, I don't want to say this, but I, I kind of feel like they're just looking for a job and this is their easy way of, of doing it. And, you know, it's a bit of a shame that they think it's so easy and, I think it's going to open their eyes up a bit later when everything starts to happen. Scooter? Well, no, there's, there's so much to unpack there. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, like what you're saying, even from my perspective, right, so I've had lots of different hats, hats within the business um, of, of cycling. However, I don't have you know, any near the understanding of, say, what you have within the intricacies of, of you know, what what really will make a difference going forward. We'll, on this podcast, you know, listen, been, I've been on with um, with Dan and, and John a fair bit over the last sort of, I guess, month and a half and a lot of discussions around safety and about, um, you know, broadcast rights and, and payments coming back into the teams to make it more of a sustainable model. 
they're all the big picture things that I guess we've, everybody's got an opinion on, but you don't really understand how that all works unless you're actually right inside of, inside of it and, you know, get to have a conversa- all these conversations to get a full understanding, which is what you're basically is what you're saying. So, just, um, just, just, Sorry, I just want to just interrupt with one thing you said. So the one, one, one thing you mentioned was, you know, how to get the broadcast rights from the, into the teams to make a bit more sustainable teams, right? This part you said there is just like this would just melt people's brains when you really think about it because for us we've got the UCI who does what they do and then you have the race organisers who are probably the most powerful people. So they make the money. <clears throat> and then you've got the teams and then you've got the riders. So you've got four different bodies. And the, the trick is the riders have to do what the teams say because if they don't, the riders won't get a contract and they're out or they won't do the race and they're out. So we're here to sort of try and please the teams. And a riders union has got nothing to do with the team. So the morning um, on, on the Giro stage, I had the team come up, the sports director come up to me and goes, why didn't you inform me about this? Why didn't I ever say? And my answer was because it's a riders decision. It's not a team's decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, and, I, and he sort of looked at me like, oh, well, yeah, you've got a point. I said, but that's the way it is. You know, if we had a team's decision, we'd all be at the start line. That's for sure. But this is about the health and safety of the riders. And then you got the race organiser. So when um, you mentioned, you know, John didn't really stick up for me, of course not, because the team has to do everything what the race organiser wants because maybe he won't get selected for the races that he wants to do. Mm. So, you know, so he sort of got inside there. And then you have the UCI, and the UCI has just mixed everything up because they don't own the races. They don't they, – they kind of own the team in a sense or fix who goes to the races, and it's just a fight from body to body to body and it's like you know if you want to get something approved you've got to get approved from everyone and it's always going to be someone that's going to disagree and it, it, it'll be totally different if it's just a versus b but it's not you know you've got c and d in there and to make everyone happy and to get a decision from everyone and especially like these these grand tours where you've got pro conti teams you know italians at the giro and belter teams at the belter and french teams at, in the in the in the, in the tour these teams will never go against any decisions. So you never have a united body at that right from the very beginning. And especially these riders, these riders will do anything their boss says. So this is this is the most complicated part. And this is what a lot of people fail to see. And they yeah, think it's yeah. they think it's so easy to make change. So easy to make change. And it's really and, and also when you do have to make a change, a lot of times you make a change that's not on, on your behalf. Like I've changed, um, like with the weather protocol, I've made a stage shorter and, and tour down under because it's too hot. And that was a day I really, really wanted. This is this is another problem we have in the CPA is, you know, I really wanted to have a go that stage. And in the heat, I love the heat. And all the riders complaining and they wanted the stage shorter. And the one guy that loves the heat is the one that has to speak to Mike and say, hey, Mike, can you make the, the stage shorter? Because, you know, the, and that's the thing. You have to speak on behalf of the Peloton, not yourself, the Peloton. And we do have, you know, we do have some problems where you do see some ties where, like, there might be a delegate at the Giro, it's Italian, at the Italian race. And, you know, this is one thing I want to change in the CPA. In France, you have a French delegate at a French race, you know, there's all inside ties there. And um, and I know when I was at Tour Down Under and I had to make some changes, yeah, I made the changes. Mike wasn't happy, but... You know, he would talk, ah, you know, it's difficult. It's like, yeah, sorry, Mike, it's the voice of the writers. I'm just a messenger, just a messenger. So 
you know, and there's always this conflict and things like that and too many boards and too many too many parties and, you know, too many organisations and the UCI just complicates things and um, it's not so easy to make a change. Scooter? Well, what you also mentioned, what a lot of people forget about with the UCI is we're talking about professional road cycling here, but the UCI also runs cyclocross, BMX, mountain bike, both downhill and, you know, cross-country, throw in, you know, gravity enduro as well. So they're trying to be all things to everyone, yet they're probably doing it at all at 80%. You know, and I, yeah. I, I don't know, I look at Formula One and think, well, Bernie Eccleston just grabbed Formula One and just pulled it out of the dark ages, took the TV rights, and they became their own entity, their own sport yeah. within an organisation, which was, you know, um, the FIA. Maybe that's where the next step of cycling needs to go as we separate the actual professional world of cycling from all the other things that the UCI are doing. Well, that, that, they tried to do that with Bellon. So the idea of Bellon was his teams got together and then teams created a race series and then they'd get their own uh, money and the TV rights and things like that. The thing is you cannot you, you need a you need an uh, external party to come in and buy the races. You need to buy the tour, you need to buy the jury, you need to buy the delta. <clears throat> and that person owns the TV rights and then also hopes that they buy the teams or creates their own teams that pay the riders. And then it'd be a proper professional sport. But we are we are not a professional sport. We are we are paid professionally, but this is not the system of a professional sport like football, like you said, or Formula One. Yeah. It's a totally different system. It's a totally different system. We're still bound to federations, which is not like this in any other sport. That's the biggest challenge of the whole thing. You just we've been skirting around it, but you know we're talking about the pie and all. If if everyone could get together, it sounds bloody holistic, but if, if all the race organisers could get together with the T's, with the UCI, the, the, the media pie would be so much bigger. They would have so much more money if they're all together doing world rights for, the, for, for, for every tour. And then everyone could have a slice of that pie, but no one's prepared to – it's not, not prepared to. It, it, it's, I don't know who the person who could do that, bring that all together. It's, not, it's no easy task. You, you Donald are, Trump. Are. Yeah, don't <laughs> No, you're 100 percent right. You're 100 percent right. Um, but the problem is, if 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 I was a businessman and I and I had the ASO, I would not give a cent extra to the teams, and I would not give a cent extra to to the UCI because I know that the majority of people that put the Tour de France on are not real cycling fans. The the, the I've seen statistics where you know a lot of them just like the scenery and and you know they like the racing. They don't know who who the riders are. And if the teams don't want to come on under their terms, they'll bring all pro Conti teams and all pro Conti teams will put their hand up. We saw that in Paris-Nice when the COVID situation happened. A lot of teams didn't want to come to Paris-Nice. Within like two weeks, um, they so had, I think, three or four different teams just rock up loving to do Paris-Nice. It was a dream, you know, for that type of team to step up and do it. And on TV, your ordinary person will not know. The stage winner is going to be the strongest guy in that day and he's going to put a show on. It might not be as exciting as, you know, Caleb or Robbie McEwen back in the day, but, you know, on TV, as a second-graded uh, pro-conti sprinter sprinting and winning a race against other pro-conti sprinters still looks pretty exciting on TV. And you might it might even be even exciting racing when you have a whole bunch of pro-conti riders riding up you know, Elk to Ez because there'll be bigger time gaps. You know, it won't be so close, you know, and there'll be better attacks and it'll be less skilled attacks. So it won't be so predicted, so predictable and so controlled. And so it might even be more exciting racing. So from 
from creating a um, agreement from everyone to try and, yeah, let's split it all. I cannot see the race organisers do it. They're, they're a private company. They're there to make money. They, they have shareholders. They have to, you know, do what the shareholders want them to do. They're not splitting the money. And I, I totally understand it from a business point of view. Scooter? Uh, ASO, they, they won the battle a long no. time ago, you know, in the, the fight between the UCI. Um, but if you had that lesser group of riders, and Pro Conti, we shouldn't say lesser, but the Pro Conti guys are still, they're good professionals. There's probably be more crashes, which would be good television as well, not great for the riders. Um, but what the, the fans wouldn't see is, you know, on a particular, say, tough day, there might be 30 guys go out the back. Um, and if you had all World Tour guys, there might be five go, guys go out the back. But the fans aren't going to see the back of the peloton. So it wouldn't matter. Really, as you say, it wouldn't really change you know, the way the race goes. What does this mean for you, though, specifically for you? Is if Are you definitely not racing again next year? Is that confirmed now that you're going into Ironman? And if you do, what does this mean for your role within the CPA and your passion for the sport? Are you going to stay doing what you're doing? Oh, I'll definitely um, stay involved in the CPA, that's for sure. It's, it's, you know, I joined the CPA almost like David Miller did. I really wanted to make a change, and I really wanted to make a big change. There's some things that I really didn't like um, in the system that I wanted to change, and I sort of came in, and I thought it was easy. I really thought it was easy, um, like what David Miller um, thought and also like um, what I think the new writing thought. I came in, I went to the the first um, General Assembly meetings and I came to three or four in a row and I realised I always sit and listen first and I really realised there's a lot of problems here like not within but what the CPA is dealing with and making a change and getting everyone on your side is actually not so easy so this is this is the reason why I joined it and for me it's like I joined the CPA and I slowly make changes to um, go things better for the riders how, how I see it so definitely, um, yeah, I'll be more involved because I have more time. Um, riding next year, um, at the moment, it is like 99.99% for sure I will not. Um, yeah. You know, this is the sad thing. You know, we've been talking about, you know, teams and uh, race organisers, UCIs. Um, I've, you know, I've come to an age where I've, I've done every race. I've done everything. I've had a really nice career and... For me, the main reasons why I'm stepping out of sport is because I'm just tired of politics, just really tired of politics, um, just with internal team things, being in teams, um, decisions in teams. Um, and for me, it's like I'm just more more free and you know I can ride my bike when I want. And, and to do – I've always wanted to do Ironmans and how I see it is, you know, I can pick the races I want to do, which is super cool. I – I can pick the races I don't want to do, which is, I think, even better. Um, <laughs> well, that's the thing that a lot of um, people forget. We do a lot of, we do some wonderful races, but we do a lot of races we don't want to do. And we, and it'd be different if you know you did them because they were good build-up races or something else. But there's a lot of times I do a race, I'm like, this is not good for anything. First, it's in a, in a time where it's terrible weather, where all I'm just going to do is get sick out of this. I have no races after this race, so why should I do this race? And I'm just I'm just a number in the peloton of this race because you know they gave me three days notice, and um, I've been told I've been on holidays for ten days. So you know why am I here? If they want me to get you know training um, faster to for the next race, I can do it much better training wise instead of just 
you know, send me on a plane, four flights to a location and just kill myself in not good form and then get go back home in a box written with DHL on it, you know. It's just Adam, um, that's when you pull that's when you pull a hammy and Adam. I can't do that. I can't do <laughs> too that. Honest. Too honest well, to do that. Was there a specific moment, Adam, that happened this year or, or when you made the decision and you're like, nah, that's it. It's it's time. Um you know, I did Florida Ironman last year, exactly one year ago. So at the end of the season I did it and I was gonna do Ironman's uh, professionally full time this year. And then um, I thought, no, no, I'll do one more season. And I kind of thought I could do Ironmans and cycling together and team. And our team was like, nah, it's just like 100% no, um, like what Cameron Worth was doing. And then this year, this year actually started really good. Um, two down under, Caleb 11s, UAE, super success with Caleb. Um, and my role changed quite a lot. I was road captain there and I um, – Instructed the riders, riders listened to me, stayed with Caleb, always protecting them in the wind, things like that. So things were like looking really, really good. And then, um, yeah, then COVID happened and then uh, we had all these meetings and everything and like normal. And then I got my race program. I asked for the Giro. They put me in the Tour, the Dolphin Air and the, the, the French program. And I wasn't so happy, but okay, that was okay. Um, and then I had a, a Zoom call with, the, the sports director, um, John, the performance, the coach, me, spoke about the program. Yeah, are you happy? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I'll do these races. And then three days later, I get an email, totally different program, totally different program. And I was like, okay, I, I prefer this program. But I was like, what happened in those three days? Like, <laughs> where's, where's the – so I make a few phone calls and – couldn't get an answer out of anyone, right? And this is, you know, this is this is this is starting to be like, you know, just not being in control and just just no honesty system, you know, just just tell me why I got this problem. So and then I was then my program changed to Strada Bianchi, Milan San Remo, Torino, um, Giro, and then maybe Gonji. So then as so I was getting super fit, super fit, and then um, I looked on Logis Cycle, which is the software I made for the team. And I was just taken out of Strata Bianchi, just with no information. No one called me, just taken out. And I was like, okay. And I'm thinking, no one's sick, no one's injured, no one's overtrained. I'm not overweight or sick or undertrained. It's the first race. So there must be a pretty good reason. Call up, no reason. Okay, fine. Still training hard, doing everything hard. And then, um, and then, uh, yeah, like three days before um, Lance and Ramel get called up out of Lance and Ramel. So I got called up for it. So I was like, I was like okay, why? And he's ah, we got 10 riders here and, you know, to send you through coronavirus and things like this. And, you know, it wouldn't make sense. And I was like, yeah, but who's going to do my job? Nah, it's difficult because we don't know. Because last year I did, uh, my job was to ride in the front and I rode 270 kilometers on the front. So I, I rode for two people. Now, this year they had one rider less, so I thought it's perfectly sending because I can do two men's job and you have one man guy extra for Phil and Callum. But because I wasn't there, they decided this, and then I said, okay. So I said, so when's my next race? And he goes, seven weeks. So I said, seven weeks is my next race. He goes, yes, Torino. I said, okay. 
And I had a, like, I was super skinny, super fit, and I needed a break because I was really preparing for these two races because that's what we do in coronavirus times. You really prepare for the, because you only do a small amount of race. You really prepare for these races. So I was like, I've 10 days off the bike. I've got time. I've got seven weeks, full recovery, and I go up. So I did full recovery, and this is what I always do. I really get off the bike and do nothing. Full recovery. And then, um, yeah, three days before Lombardy, get a call up. Adam, and I laugh. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, what do you want? Yes, how are you? I said, I'm very good until you called me. What would you like? And he's like, oh, we're a bit short on guys in Lombardy. Um, would you come? I said, look, I'd love to come. But to be honest, I haven't touched my bike for 10 days. And if there's a better rider you can find, I recommend taking the better rider. But if not, I'm happy to come. No problem. I'm free. I'll do it for the team. That's it. And then I went there, I had a goal, I did over the expectations of my goal, of the point where I should stop, but before that was super good. I had two guys drop before me when I'm having 12 bottles in my back going up a climb, getting dropped, so I wasn't so bad. And then, so I did my job and everything. <clears throat> but then after the race, I heard in, because I have good connections within the team, that they weren't <laughs> so happy with me because I did not, train i was not always on my bike and in good in shape uh good always riding my bike and why and why should a rider have 10 days off during the season and i heard this so i got a you know i i like to talk things face to face i called the sports director and i said why did you say this and he goes yeah but you should i said yeah but you told me i don't have a race for seven weeks so it's best i have a break and prepare for my next block and i wasn't First reserve Lombardy. I wasn't second reserve Lombardy. I actually wasn't even on the list for Lombardy. So <clears throat> I don't understand where the mistakes on my side. I did exactly what you guys said, and I thought I was doing something good, even rocking up and you know, um, <clears throat> doing a job over the expectations you wish. And the the credit I get was he didn't touch his bike for ten days. This is unacceptable and things like that. When you told me I don't race for seven weeks, so you know. If, if you said, Adam, just be prepared, Romedy, and maybe, you know, because that's what reserves get told to do. Um, and, you know, when all this is happening, it's just like, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's tiring, you know? It's like you can never make these guys happy. And it's sort of like, you know, like I was super fit and prepared, prepared for, the first, <clears throat> for the first races and no explanations, they just take me out. And then, it's like, yeah, it's okay. It's my job. That's fine. And then I get called into a race where I wasn't even um, first, second reserve. And I go there because it's my job and I'm happy to do it. And, and I love Lombardy. I had so much fun there. But I was too honest. I shouldn't have said I had 10 days off the bike because they would have not have noticed at all because I did my job better than expected. But just for them to know, they needed to blame something. And, you know, it's just like they just, they always want to, you know, they always want authority and just, you know, just, give you a little twist and, and all of this is sort of like, you know what, I, I have no guarantee I do Torino. I, I really didn't thought I'd do the Giro the way the team was handling me. So in that sense, I was like, do I really want a sporting career where I put my, because I have to, when I look back, I don't want to be too harsh, but my level has dropped. I say not because of my own choices and when you get thrown around a lot, it's very hard in professional racing to sort of maintain a good level of fitness when you don't know what you're doing the next day. 
Um, and especially for me, this year I did uh, two one-day races that were not world tour. So this year was the first time I did not do a world tour race in, I think, seven years. So I've always raced at the highest, highest, highest level and never had a problem, but it's really been, which is good, but it's really been a situation where I, I didn't know if I was doing these races. I, I sort of had to wait. And for me, it's sort of like, you know, to leave the sport and to do a, a, a different sport when I can pick my races and I can pick what not to do and I can pick like small things like, you know, when we go to a race, like the travels to the race can be can be a big fight to with the sports track, you know, because in their opinion, you know, they say, oh, we should you should fly like three days before on this flight. And I'm like, yeah, but I can go two days before and I have a night flight. And yeah, but you should fly during the day. It's easy. I'm like, yeah, but I fly during the day. I lose a day training. And then, you know, if I fly the night, open types of, you know, ideas and opinions and that. And, and you know, it's, it's small things. You know, they're doing what's best, what they want. And I'm trying to do what's best for me to perform. And you're always, you're always arguing with someone. And it's sort of like, well, you know, my job is to perform at my best and I know what I can do to do that. But I just feel like you're always putting obstacles in the way. And I just want to do a sport where there's no obstacles. I make the choices and responsibility, the responsibility is on me. If I don't perform well, then it's my fault. It's completely my fault. And this is what sort of made me excited about a new sport where I can really decide, you know, Everything and everything's in my hands and I have total control. Well, it, it sounds like there's a clear breakdown in one, communication, two, respect. Um, has the team always been like this or do you think 2020's cooked a lot of people? Um, uh, the, the communication's never been um, our strong point in our team. It's never been. Um, and... And this is sad. This is this is always sad. Uh, and you know, on one side, for me, I have other projects outside of cycling. So for me, this team is, and the one reason why I stay in this team is, it's actually good because I have that free card where you know I can just go to the races, do my job, come home, focus on my my lifestyle here. So I didn't mind it so much in that sense. And if you are well established, and if you are like an older rider, this team is very good for that. Um, you know, because they're not always on your nose, watching what you're doing, doing, you know, um, and, and it's kind of good in that sense. But on the other side, if you do need that support, you know, there's, there's, there's not much here. That's the sad thing, especially in this team. So the communication, the communication is horrible in this team. It is, it is, you can't even put a word next to it because there is no communication. Um, so this is, this is one sad thing. Um, about this team and the team knows it and they're trying to fix it but it's it's difficult because you know government team staff trying to protect their own jobs you know um so this has been you know it's been a positive because the team always runs but it's been negative because you know guys protecting their own jobs um respect yeah (laughs) yeah well obviously from an Aussie perspective we've got uh Caleb Ewan in that environment um knowing that there is a bit of a breakdown is this going to be a potential issue down the track, given the support that he's going to need as a, as a young younger rider? The good thing is, you know, if you're let me let me say, like I I probably had a problem with one of the sports directors, um, 
and he's just made it a bit difficult for me. Um, so this is why my path has probably gone in a different direction to Caleb. Caleb's on a different side because, you know, he's winning races. And when you're winning races, um, you know, they're the ones that come to you and, and do anything for you. So, and Caleb's also the type of guy that's, um, you know, he gets frustrated when things don't go right. Um, and they don't go right a bit. But he's also a type of rider where, you know, he's a bit more free. He doesn't need so much support on the other side, like from the other sprinters. So in this sense, it's not so bad for Caleb to be in this team. Um, the benefits of Caleb being in a team like this, a lot of Sadol has always been a sprint-orientated team. So um, just with this in mind, it's going to be a lot easier for Caleb. See, if Caleb joined a different team, they're always going to be a GC guy. So that's that's always for sure. And um, when you go to a race with a GC guy and a sprinter, the team's half divided, and then you've got far less for helping you in, in the lead-outs. Where with Lotta Sadal, it's always been sprint orientated and he will go to a team with, you know, six or seven out of eight for him. And um, I think I think sometimes Caleb gets a bit tired with the, the, the politics and things like this. But, um, yeah, definitely, um, I think it's 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 a good situation. There, there have been times where it's, Caleb's had tough, tough times in this team. But you know, when you take a step back, it's it's not a not such a bad team for him. Scooter, um, Dan, this is not new. Let's go back to uh, you know what we know about the time that Cadell had in the team. You remember mm. Robbie Robbie McEwen, um, was the, he was the man for the team. He was winning all the races for them as a sprinter, as you said, Adam. Then he brought Cadell uh, into the team, and as Cadell grew and became more and more the potential Tour de France winner. We, from the outside, so Dan and I, you know, working for Fox Sports at the Tour de France, we saw basically Lotto back then just melt down over trying to scramble and get Cadell to get the win. And they were already, they, they'd almost like celebrated that he was going to win before he did, which made it worse. Mm. And then there was complete capitulation between Cadell and the team. That's when he left to a, a happier environment to BMC, which got him his, uh, his overall victory in the end. But we have seen this before with this particular team, unfortunately. Now, we have to wind the clock back because if he is just chewing at the bit like a greyhound in the starting box, you want to talk about the Crocodile <laughs> Trophy, Johnny. Well, off you go. Yes. I want to go. But Adam's such an interesting character. We're, 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 you know, we've only touched on you know, all that, this, this other stuff. We've gone for nearly an hour already. But I want to go back because how you started in the sport is different. So I, I know you won the Crocodile Trophy back in uh, 05, 04, 04, I think, wasn't it? 04. Um, which, which, where'd that, was that starting in Darwin or was that when it was all in Queensland? I think that year it started in, um, I think that year it started in Darwin. Yeah. I can't remember. You were there, mate. You were there. You won it. You don't. uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's how hard it was. That's how hard it was. So so I'm probably guilty for some of this crocodile trophy stuff. You you need to explain what it is too because there's a lot of people going, what the hell is this? Well, crocodile trophy is a a mountain bike race, an extreme mountain bike race. It's still going now. It's in northern Queensland. But when it first started, this crazy Austrian named Gerhard Schombacher, 
who I had raced against uh, when we were amateurs and later on pros. I brought him out to Australia. He rode the Sun Tour a couple of times. And so I'm probably guilty of, uh, of bringing him here. But he decided, so he worked on this race, got Eurosport involved, and the Crocodile Trophy was, I think he was going to do it in Vietnam originally. But anyway, it started. The first one was Darwin to Cairns, right across the Gulf. I think it was about two and a half weeks. It was a monster of an event. It was probably the worst organised event of all time, but it was it was staggering. And I, I can remember we got down to Catherine, and we had a rest day. And he said, and then then we're going right across the Gulf. And he said, oh, the refrigerated trailer uh, hasn't turned up yet. It's going to meet us on the road in a day or so's time. I said, no, it's not, mate. We're not starting until we get that refrigerated trailer. So we had to have an extra rest day. The cooks quit. They had two Austrian. Cooks, they quit, <laughs> so I had to go around the backpackers and get to um, two uh, uh, backpackers, an American guy and an English girl, to come. I said, I'll give you a free trip across to uh, Cairns, but you've got to cook for about uh, 100 and something people. Anyway. <laughs> I, I like how John goes, it was one of the worst organised events, yet he was part of the organising. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> I, was, I, was the me- I was his media guy. I ended up having to do all that stuff. But anyway. Yeah. Oh, it's a, that's so. Uh, that's my uh, and it was just, but a wonderful event. I mean, right across, staying at the cattle stations, sleeping in a swag under the stars, but ha- as, as hard as the Tour de France, really. It, on a, on a mountain bike, going through you know dust and mud, mud every day, it was staggeringly hard. So, what was your memories of the first uh, crocodile trophy? And that is the longest question we've ever had on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I love the Crocodile Trophy, and you're right. It was it was not just it was not an event just on the bike. It was an event also off the bike. So you had to finish the race. You had to set up your own tent. You had to clean your own bike. Um, you had, you had to do your own repairs and everything yourself. Um, and this is hard because the stages are hard. Some of the, I think the longest stage, just from memory, was like 225 kilometers on a mountain bike and with bull dust which was a nightmare yeah. to ride through and yeah so it was not just off uh, on the bike it's also off the bike and yeah things were going wrong things are really going wrong like i remember one time on with this transition day um i had the, the luxury to um go in the red bull car um so i was driving the red bull car and then gerhard's schumbacher the race organizer his car broke down right so i had to tow him with this other car so i'm towing him and we're trying to get to the start trying to get to the start i'm towing him and there's you know between places darwin and Cairns, there's no petrol stations or anything so i'm towing him and we're going pretty quick right because we've got to get to the start line and then and we both had radios and communicating to each other and we're like um i'm like gerhard i'm running out of petrol and he's like yeah yeah we, well we can take the petrol out of uh, my car and put it in your car and keep going and we're going 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 and i'm like is your car petrol or diesel? And he goes, diesel. I'm like, mine's petrol. And he's like, ah. And then, um, <laughs> and then, oh, and we had a probably extra 100k to go. And I was like, okay. And then we started slowing down, being more efficient in that. And then we found out one of the generators had um, petrol in it. And we were so lucky that we had one. So we had to, you know, sit that through the, you know, hose and then put it into the car. And that just made us get there. So the race could start. And we just left the two cars there and they had to deal with that problem. So it was really like this, you know. It was really like fixing stuff on the way. But the race was beautiful. I always said to my cycling European friends, if you want to see Australia, 
to the Crocodile Trophy. You will see the outback, you'll see the rainforest, you can go scuba diving Great Barrier Reef, you'll see the true, you'll see parts of Australia Europeans will never ever go to see. You'll be having dinner, camp, camp made camp dinners around a bushfire together with a bunch of Australians and also Europeans. You, you'll see animals that you'll never seen in a zoo before. Um, it is it is seriously one of the nicest races, and I'm doing it next year. Oh, great. Oh, good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Great. Hey, uh, we've got some fan questions. I might um, churn through a few of these. Um, first, a comment. It seems we might have a better chance of attaining global peace and harmony before we see a sustainable model for pro-cycling. That's a good point, <laughs> Pete. Uh, we've got one from Neil. He says, Adam, have you seen any changes towards a more plant-based diet in cycling? Seeing how old school teams can be, was this an added challenge for you to fit in or they see an opportunity to be healthier? Um, you know, this is also one of the reasons why I'm, I'm happy to, to, to retire is, um, you know, a lot of people fail to to to, to remember that you know all, all athletes are, are vegan based when they're when they're racing. So if you look at all gels and all um, bars, they're all old school date bars, or um, if they have rice cakes or or anything riders eat on the bike. Well, if they even have a Coke, for example, or a Sprite, this is all this is all um, you know vegan food or plant based. Um, so all energy is is carbohydrate and all carbohydrate is being based now some some of the uh the the bars do have milk in it or some flavors just to make it taste better for performance wise everyone racing is a pure vegan during racing um <clears throat> so in that sense yeah if you want to try a plant-based diet and race professionally yeah it's very easy it's very easy and also carbo loading before the race the night before you know you're going to be having rice um potatoes pasta it's all vegan too um, no one, no one in today's time has a huge steak before the morning of a race. That just uh, never happens, and and there's no power in steak. Steak is yeah, it's protein, um, and you can get protein from different sources, obviously. <clears throat> and you know, so I, I the thing is to have enough protein in a plant based diet. You got to have a broad range of a meal, which you should with any diet. So you know, if you're not going to be a vegan or vegetarian or something, you shouldn't just be eating one selected type of food. You should have a broad range of the food that you're eating. And if you do that on a plant based diet, you get all the branch chain amino acids because they say you don't get the nine essential branch chain amino acids from a plant source, which is true. But no one just eats soy. No one just eats. Um, and protein no one eats just um rice protein but if you mix it all up and you have legumes beans uh nuts cashews whatever you will get the branch chain amino acids from the nine essential ones and that's all you need for <clears throat> muscle recovery and when people also say yeah but do you get enough protein um on a plant-based diet my answer is always well do you get enough on a normal diet because if you do why is every cyclist out there drinking protein shake at the end of the race and if they do have enough protein in the normal diet, they shouldn't be having a protein shake at the end of the race. And the truth is every cyclist has a protein shake at the end of the race. So don't feel bad if you're on a plant-based diet and you're having a protein supplement also because the ones that always say that they have enough protein are adding protein. They're supplementing protein. So, um, you know, if you look in that sense, it makes total clear sense. Um, and I don't want to get too much into, you know, the nutritional side, but, you know, there's studies that prove if you have more than 35 grams of animal protein, you have kidney damage, 
And uh, I think it's like 70% of Americans have problems with kidneys that are unaware of it. And it's been proven that plant-based protein has no side effects on the kidneys. So you can actually have a lot more than 35 grams of protein um, on animal-based. And the good thing about, you know, when you do have 30 to 35 grams, you have uh, three to four grams of leucine, which is one of the uh, main uh, branched-chain amino acids, which creates protein synthesis, which makes you um, makes muscle recovery. So you can actually have more protein on a plant-based diet compared to an animal diet without having a side effect. So you can definitely do it. I've done it. I have no problem. I'm still alive. So if you want to do it, go for it. Have you ever thought about going on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? <laughs> <laughs> that, Mate, that, I reckon you just smashed it. That question opened up a can of worms in Adam Hansen's head, that's for sure. Um, so you don't regret coming worms of Worms of protein, though. Yeah, true. No, through Johnny's era, and, and you hear the stories of even Phil Anderson when he first started, when he was in the pros, if it was a long stage or if it was a classic, you know, Flanders or whatever, they're having steak and eggs in the morning for breakfast, oh, yeah. having to fight that yeah. food first thing in the morning because they yeah. felt that they had to have something substantial the, to get through the, the worst day. part. Crazy. The worst part about you talking about eating healthy is I was staring at this bag of lolly gobble. Goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where am I at with my life? You know, uh, <laughs> and make some changes. <laughs> um, well, so going going back to so you talked about the in the beginning with, with the crocodile trophy, but how did you get into road racing? Tell, tell us that story because it is a fascinating yarn. <laughs> so I um I was actually doing triathlons um many many years ago. And I was a very good swimmer. I was a very good bike rider, but I couldn't ride. I oh, sorry, very good swimmer, very good runner, but I couldn't ride a bike. So I thought I would. Um, I thought I would try cycling. So I joined a club in Austria, and I started doing some road cycling in Austria. And I, I yeah, I, I loved the cycling scene. And the the guy that was helping out was Gerhard Schumbacher, who set me up for the Crocodile Trophy. So I was doing these um, Crocodile Trophy events also. And I was just riding for a club in Austria, just a small club. Anyone can join. You could just fly over and just ask to ride and um, they'll give you the kit for free and you have to use your own bike. And I just started racing over in Austria. I got smashed, totally smashed. Um, but I loved it, loved the culture and everything. And then I decided to go back and basically I went from like an amateur team to another amateur team to a continental team, I think for two years. And then I went to a pro conti, you know, no, I went to a continental team that was going to pro Conti, but then I decided to go back. And then, um, yeah, I had a, a chance to do a performance test with T-Mobile back in the day. So and it was up with uh, me, um, Bernard Cole, Gus Billing. Um, yeah, it was just us three. And basically the, 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 the doctor came out and said, okay, we're going to do a performance test on you three riders and strongest two make it. And I was like, okay, cool. So this is what I was told before. And then I, I changed my training specifically for performance tests. So, and I, and I looked, I Googled their, their performance test, the team I was a very long RAM test. So I was just doing RAM tests almost every day, right? <laughs> so if you want to do a really good one. And I went there and I was the strongest out of the three in the RAM test. And the doctor put his hand out, congratulations around the team. Drove back thinking I was going to ride for T-Mobile, got the phone call, didn't get the spot. I didn't get the spot because Bernard Cole Cole was Austrian and Gus Billing was um, Dutch. And they had T-Mobile in both of these countries and they had no T-Mobile in Australia. So it was a political decision I never got got into the team. 
And then the doctor was very sorry and apologetic because he said I would be on the team. And then I was super lucky when they had that um, doping scandal um, with Jan Wood. And they fired 26 riders and then they needed 26 riders. And then basically we were all interviewed and they had a set path where they wanted to go and they needed young riders with a different mindset. And if you fit the team with the new mindset, then I got the job. Um, those HTC years, particularly, uh, talk about a team batting well above their average. What what was the chemistry like in that group? Oh, it was great. It was it was amazing. Like we had, you know, like you know, we had Andre Greipel who would win twenty five percent of his races, twenty five percent. So if you're on Andre's program, every fourth race you would win. So this is just mind blowing. Um, you had Mark Cavendish that didn't have a higher percentage of winning races but he was like winning every big race which was you know um and then you had the likes of like kim kirkin who i think he was like i could be wrong like fourth on the tour one day but but once one time we went to the tour i think we won like six stages he was he you know had won everything and now edbald Lasagan, um tony martin george hincapi um, everything was just complete success in that team. It was just we just had the, the team was the team was built around time trials. We had I think we had nine like I was national champion time trial. Edward Vasagen was national champion. Um, Thomas Lubis was national champion. Uh, Tony Martin was national champion, all world champion. Bert Gupsch was national time trial champion. Ribon Frankisak was national champion. Um, I'm sure I'm missing a few, but we had just <laughs> such a strong, solid team that could ride on the front all day and do wonderful lead outs. And we were like unstoppable. And this was this is really the key. I think um time trials back in those days when we didn't have, you know, the knowledge of aerodynamics, things like that, were just big, strong guys. Bradley Wiggins also, you know, good time trialers. Um, and because of that. Um, we were super strong guys. Where time trials today, uh, like okay, except for Garni, he's he's huge. But you know, if you look at guys like Victor Kampanas, he's not he's not a super strong rider, but super aero, super technical, and very good time trial. So because of the power we had in the leadouts, you know, this this comes to show, and we would pretty much put our sprinter basically front line, 150 meters to go, and all you needed to do is do a sprint. You didn't have to fight. Easy. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Do you think it's one of the best – oh, best. It's, it's a pretty strong example of the unsustainable um, platform of cycling. You won so many races, but they couldn't get a sponsor to keep that group and that team going. Yeah, well, it's, there's two sides to that coin. You know, Bob Stapleton really wanted a one sponsor. He didn't want to – he didn't want to be a team where it was like sponsors all over the jerseys and look, he, he wanted to keep that image where you really had one sponsor that represented the whole team, like like T-Mobile. That, and that's that's probably the biggest fault. We came from T-Mobile, was like T-Mobile, that's it, you know. Um, and then when we had um, Columbia, that was good. So Columbia, just one sponsor. And then it was like HCC Columbia. And then um, after that, you know, it could would have been like that. But also Bob... Bob was a very clever guy. Um, I, I think more to it is he wanted to have the best team, but he couldn't really have 
the best team because he signed a lot of us super young um, and on very cheap contracts, very cheap contracts because he got us before our prime. We had a very good um, – Ralph Aldark, he did an amazing job scouting these riders, getting them before their peaks. And Bob would sign very low contracts with them, which were a lot higher than what they had previously. But, you know, so being young like Ed Bolt or Tony Martin, super excited, making – not huge money, but making huge money compared to what they had. And then, um, you know, get through the first year, get some good results, and then they'd be angry because they weren't earning a mark. And Bob, clever businessman, was like, okay, so what we can do is we can give you an extra longer, at, you know, double your pay, which is not much from the beginning with, and we can pay you a little bit extra next year. So how would you like that? And then this would be in the first year. And, the, you know, they're kids, the young guys, and, oh, I get, you know, 50% more next year and I have a year longer, so it's guaranteed and I get double, so they sign it. Still terrible money. And then he would wait and then the rider gets better and better and then the, and the rider would be like, yeah, but I should be earning more money and Bob would be like, okay, what we can do is we can give you one year extra for a little bit more money and pay you more money now. Because when you pay more, when you pay a rider more money during the season, this is a win in their eyes because that's a contract mm. they signed and the team breaks it to give you something more now. So a lot of riders kept doing this, but, you know, they probably should be earning this, and Bob always kept them at this mm. rate, you know what I mean, um, just by extending, extending, extending. And, you know, we did have some clever riders like um, Edvald um, Hagenas. He was like, had the same deal, riding super well, and the team went, Tim, would you like your contract extended? Yeah, sure. No, I don't take this. You know, they had asked him again. He goes, no, no, I'm happy on minimum. He rode two years minimum in HCC. And then he went to Sky for like, I think it was 20 times more money. And that that wasn't absurd, right? It, that's what he was worth. But the thing is, when you would compare him to Tony Martin, Ed Bud got so much more just waiting patiently. And a lot of riders didn't do this. This is a, a fault of a lot of the riders and a fault of a lot of the managers working for these riders at the time. So Bob was doing this, but he couldn't do this forever. And he was also doing to Mark Cavendish. Mark Cavendish was not making good money in HTC. Like, I don't want to throw figures out there, mm. but you guys would be seriously surprised what he was on in the last two years of his career there. He made he made very, very little money, very little money. But he was did, always locked in, always locked in. Did you have a manager or did you do the contracts yourself? Um, I had, I've been off and on managers. So a lot of times I don't like to be working with them. Um, and during the period, um, in HTC, I think I went to a manager after that. Mm. Yeah. Because I, I learned, well, I also learned the hard way as Bob. Bob, Bob was trying to, you know, Bob, I won't say who my manager was. I'm a manager made an agreement with Bob. And and the thing is, especially Bob, is like you have to sign before the tour. And if you don't sign before the tour, you don't go to the tour. So this is what a lot of teams do. So they sort of, you know, use that against you. And I made an agreement with my manager and my manager went on holidays, which Bob knew he went on holidays. And then I went to the Tour de France and then Bob gave me the contract in front of me to sign. I was like, uh, this is not what my manager was. It was actually half what my manager said on the phone. And then Bob was like, call your manager. And he knew, I knew that he knew that he's on holidays and I can't call him. And it was two days before and they could they were going to replace me. So I had to sign the state. <clears throat> and then um, I was like, I, and then I, I made a little white line that said, look, I have a manager and in our contract, I'm not allowed to sign anything without communicating with him. 
and I said this. This wasn't true, but I said this just to give me some time. I was I was in a hotel room with Bob Stapleton and his wingman and the printer, because he'd always carry a printer. His printer signed the contract to sign, and I was like, I was really like, yeah, um, it's I would be breaching my contract if I was to sign something that I didn't agree with my manager. That got me out of the room just to think. Call my manager. Couldn't get him. He's on holidays. Tried it. And then Bob was like, okay, you got to come in one hour. And then we had to negotiate to ourselves. So I negotiated, okay, how about we keep this? But then, you know, we put some bonuses in there and things like that. Um, and then I had some crazy bonuses like um, if I was good enough to start the Tour de France, I'd get a bonus um, because he wanted to finish. And for me, it was like, yeah, but I work for Mark Cavendish who doesn't finish. And if you tell me to wait with Mark and he gets dropped and I get dropped and I'll lose my bonus because I get – I do it because I get told what to do. So I'm doing my job and I lose my bonus. This is wrong. So if I'm good enough to be at the start list of the Twitter front, I should be paid for that. And he goes, yeah, okay, I have that. And that bonuses for wins. Um, that bonuses for wins also. And then the year after, um, it was a crazy year. I won the National Time Style Championships, but we lost T-Mobile and the jerseys weren't ready. And because we had no, we had no clothing and because I, started in a, just a plain suit, he, he did not claim that as a team win because I wasn't in race gear. But we didn't have race oh. gear at the time, right? So he didn't want to pay the bonus for that. So we had a little bit of fight, blah, blah. But then I waited. It was okay because at the end of the year, he was always passionate about how many wins the team had. And we had 85, 86 wins. I'd go through the list. Ah, oh, national PTs. <laughs> so I'd go back and I said, I won and um and you've listed it, you counted it as a win, so you must pay me for this. And then, you know, also um uh oh we went to court with this. That's right, we went to court with this because I did the Tour de France that day, that year, and I broke my collarbone, sternum, and a few ribs on stage one. And um I had a bonus for starting a grand tour. So I started at stage one, but I crashed and I couldn't do stage two. And then he didn't want to pay me for the bonus. But the bonus is really paying me for the level rider I am. So I was good enough to make the team. So that's what I was paid for, for that level. Because we're trying to get for what they negotiated. I come to the tour, I got half. I was like, okay, how can I make this half? And I tried to get with bonuses, right? So he was open to that. And um yeah so when we went to court so i want i demand this money and then he took me to court so he took me to court and because he took me to courts in a place where he takes me and that was in san Luis Obispo, where i wanted to do in europe so i had to get lawyers over there and and the way his lawyer just worded it was like yeah adam hansen is a one of nine riders that participated in a race of 200 riders at the tour de france which is 21 days long as a total of I don't know, 3,500 kilometers and he crashed and didn't and completed only 140 kilometers of that and demands and we do not want to pay him for his bonus of this. And when you read it, you start to believe like, oh, I really don't deserve this money. But, <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah. Then, then the defense is piss off, mate. I started. Yeah, Jeez, so <laughs> so yeah. did you yeah. get, did you win the case, mate? Did I got everything. I got everything. Oh, actually, yeah. actually, I'll tell you something. <laughs> Oh, please do. Don't cut out. <laughs> no one knows about And it's probably time I should say it because I think it's seven years have passed. And it's no just, just, just between us. It's only just between us. It's not going to so, go past yeah. Just between us. 
So my lawyers look at the contract and in Bob's contract was always as the independent worker, as the independent worker, as the independent worker, right? And then my and we were negotiating, you know, trying to find a settlement. And my, my lawyer's like, but you're not an independent contractor. I said, yeah, it says that every second line of the contract. He goes, I know it says it on every second line of the contract, but this contract is bound by California law. And California law states if you wear a uniform and you have a boss and you have to do what the boss says, this is in non-legal terms, you're an employee. You're not an independent contractor. Are you allowed to work for a different team? No, no. So then you're employed for this, you know, because if you're a contractor, you can contract to anyone. I could ride for yeah, yeah, yeah. a different team, but you're not. You're an employee of a team. <clears throat> I was like, but what's that got to do with it? As an employee and as employer, they must pay your tax and your social for everything. As a oh. contractor, you pay it for yourself. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, well, technically, he's meant to be paying on top of your tax too, to the American tax department. I was like, yeah. And are these contracts for every single ride in Peloton? I'm like, uh, yeah. <clears throat> then he should be doing it to every single rider in his team. I was like, okay. He goes, so we just tell him that? And if he doesn't want to pay everyone's tax on, so this is tax on top. So if let's say the team has 20 million in budgets uh, in, in, in payments to paying the riders, then he's got to pay tax on 20 million in financial, uh, like healthcare and all that to all the riders, <laughs> which is like, we're talking millions, you know? Yeah. So my lawyer slipped that line in and then I got my full payment and I was told. (laughs) (laughs) Was the hardest part, because we used to interview Bob back in the day at the tour and stuff, this external media persona, which is very, hey, yeah, 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 but behind the scenes, this ruthless businessman that was totally different. It's a yin and the yang. Well, so we we, we had the saying, we still use it today because it's so famous. You did a great, great, great job. Great job, guys. Great job. But you're fired. <laughs> we Donald Trump. He Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. We say it all the time. Every time a guy did something, great job, great job. All the chef, all the mechanic, all the swanier, even in Lotto, because we had so many guys that were from HCC and I sort of came into it and came into our team. It was like, yeah, great job, great job, but you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, wow. so tell us about the journey to do to break the record for the racing grand tours in a row. Um, was this something that just naturally unfolded or was this something that once it gathered momentum, you're like, you know, I can do this? And and what was it about it that, that made you want to do it? I always want to do three Grand Tours one year. <clears throat> That's something I always wanted to do. And, uh, yeah, I, I did it. I asked to do the Belter one year because I always did the, the Giro and the Tour. And then the sports director thought it was a bit crazy. And, I was, and he said, yeah, 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 He just shook his head. Yeah, 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 we'll put you down there. And then I saw the star list. I said, no, no, I'm serious. Can I do it? He goes, you really want to do three in one year? I said, yeah, I want to do three in one year. I want to try it. So he put me in. And the next year, um, I said, exact same program. Worked really well. I liked it. Okay. And then Delta came around. You sure you want to do it? I said, yeah, yeah sure I did. So then I did six. And after I did six, someone said, you know, there's a record, right? And I was like, record for what? And they're like, a record for the most consecutive tours. And I was like, okay, what's that? And they're like, um, 10, I think it was back then. And I was like, oh, 
Um, I can't do that. Oh, yeah, you can. You just did six. I was like, yeah, but you know, I can crash. I can get sick. I can not get selected. You know, there's so many, so many variables that can stop it. Have a bad day or whatever. Um, and then, um, so I did nine. So it was nine, and then um, they're like, oh, you're so close. And I did ten. And as soon as I did ten, they go, oh, no, that's not the record. The record's twelve. <laughs> and I was oh, like. Oh. Oh. Like, ah, well, 10 is a record for the three-week Grand Tours, but, you know, back in the day, back in 1958, the belt was two weeks long. So technically, you have to do 12 to comp- to beat the guy that did the two-week Grand Tours. I was, okay, so, okay, I'll, I'll do 12. And, <clears throat> but I was just doing it because I, I really thought, you know, it's not going to happen. Then on my 12th one, I had a very bad crash, dislocated my shoulder, um, I, I, I broke my collarbone a little, and this was on stage three. I had a teammate that just took me out. That's okay. <clears throat> I don't put any um, grudges on Tim Wellens at all. But this was a stage. This is the, the tour where we had the parachute bay stage, and it was like four days <clears throat> before. So they were taping out my shoulder and everything. Oh, and when I crashed, I thought this is it. 12 is a good number. I didn't thought I'd make it. I was just riding into the finish with the guys that all crashed together. And we made time cut. Like it was a flat stage, a stage two. We made time cut by like 30 seconds. So I was almost out there. <clears throat> and then, um, yeah, then uh, we had the parachute bay stage and that was hell. That was really hell. Um, basically, they pretty much plastered my shoulder inwards, like so much tape wrapped around my body where I could hardly not move at all. It, it, it was painful, but it worked. And I was able to finish the 12th one and then I equaled it and then I did the 13th and I broke it. And then after that, I, I just, just forgot about it because it wasn't, it was a bit of pressure on the 12th one because I never believed I could do it just purely because of sickness. You know, you can get sick so easy. Your immune system so vulnerable on this. Um, but yeah, it was when it, when it happened, I was super surprised. And then, um, and then, yeah, the, the team really wanted me to stop it. Um, uh, <laughs> This, this this one sports director I was saying before, he didn't like me. He likes to have control in the team. And pretty much, you know, I had to go to the, to the Grand Tours because it was this thing I was doing. And he didn't like not to have the power to select me. Um, and, you know, he really wanted, you know, to select me. And then the Velta came up and then it was like um, preparing for the Velta. And then a Swanier told me I'm not doing it. This is the communication part we're talking about. I'm yeah. like, what do you mean I'm not in the belt? And I was like, yeah, you're not on the list. I said, how do you know? And then there's a good friend of mine, with Swanian. He goes, yeah, um, they spoke about the list at the tour of Poland today and you're not there. I was like, okay. So I called a sports director, didn't pick up my phone, called another sports director, didn't pick me up. I messaged the sports director, no reply, message again, no reply, message again, no reply. And then I thought, okay, I'll be a little problem in a team which i shouldn't i created a whatsapp group i added all the sports directors in there just ask ask the question and when you do this it puts pressure on him to answer in front of everyone else and i mm. see if everyone gets a c because he has the ticks turned off when you do a group you see all the ticks so everyone got it so i saw everyone got it he answered jimmy like that directly and then he said yeah we think it's in your best interest not to do it i said okay that's fine that's all you needed to tell me because i've been training the last two weeks for it so it's just nice to know what my next race is. 
<clears throat> and then um, so I just forgot about it. And then um, and I was good, you know, I was happy with 19 and that. And then uh, just <clears throat> had my mum over, <clears throat> having a good time. And then uh, two weeks before the Belter, my phone rings with Mario on the phone, who never calls me. And Mario is the sports director of the Belter. So I knew exactly what it was. I think that, Mario, how are you? Adam, how are you? So I'm pretty good. Just wondering why you're calling me. <laughs> and then he's like, how fit are you? I said, ah, oh, I'm okay. Good enough to do the Velta. And he goes, you want to do it? And I was sort of thinking, do I really want to do it? Like at that point in time, it was like in my head, I was probably finished. But I thought, no, I should do it. I should. Why not? make it 19 and yeah i'll do it so i said yes i'll do it and um because what happened was is a writer broke so first they didn't select me and uh, the the fans went ballistic on the facebook page and um on lotto sadol and it wasn't because <clears throat> it wasn't because i wasn't good enough because the Delta back then was selected by you know all first years and new guys and giving guys chances and things like that and um, and I, I, I really deserved to be on the team that year. Um, it's just, it was just uh, this sports director wanting to have the power not to select me. You know, he just he 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 has this power trip where he wants you know the power of everything. So, and I understand that. I understand. So, but when um, Rafa Bell broke his hip, and I wasn't even first or second reserve. So when Rafa Bell broke his hip two weeks before, and then I got the call up, it was really like wow, like. Um, I think my fans really supported me well because, yeah, Lotto, I think it was Lotto, um, at least all back then, they really got hammered because I wasn't going. Especially, you know, it would have been the tour and I was riding really badly before, I understand. But I was riding really well and not getting selected with the Delta was like, yeah, but you're taking these guys, like guys that our team has never heard of. We've got guys in our team that are no one's ever heard of. So, yeah, so I was pushed in there and I was super happy to be there. And then this sports director was trying to be my friend after that. He goes, Adam, let's just make it 20. A nice number. Let's just make it 20 for Giro and you stop. I said, okay. Yeah, and, you know, I had no negotiating power. So I was like, yeah, okay. I, I understand this. Uh, I understand I needed a better work environment than um, personal goals at that time. So, um, yeah, and then when it was 20, it was nice. And it was it's a good thing to have. I actually like it. At the time, I didn't appreciate it so much, but <clears throat> I noticed a lot of times when people talk about me, you know, it's always the 20 Grand Tours. And I won, you know, stages in the Giro, the Velta, being national champion. No one talks about that. No one cares. Everyone's interested in the 20 Grand Tours. And <laughs> it really shows, it really shows to me how unique it is and how different it is, um, how hard right. it is. It's amazing, mate. It's staggering. I've ridden I've ridden one one. So we're the opposite end of the scale. I've ridden one and you've ridden twenty. There you go. Um, the the other thing is the shoes. The fact that you make your own shoes. That gets mentioned all the time in commentary, mm. which is quite a unique thing. And and we've had this conversation before. It's quite uh, amazing. Well, to do that. well, but you've had the conversation before, Scotty, but the people out there have it, so we need to no, know no. about the shoes. It's quite amazing. Let's do it. Let's get onto that. I just want to tap back on the Grand Tour stuff because now I don't know if you remember the conversation we had at, was it Cadell's, uh, Cadell Evans' race several years back? And I asked you, you, you were just in the middle of actually doing all those Grand Tours back to back. And I just put it to you, which is the best? Which one do you like the most? Which is your favorite? 
and you didn't really want to answer because you didn't want to upset anybody. Whereas now it's quite clear that you're okay with upsetting people <laughs> from that last conversation, right? But what you did, what I then, I then rephrased the conversation to take the pressure off and just said, okay, if they were people, if the Grand Tours were people, what would be their personalities? So That's a you good can, question, Scott. Yeah, Very so good. it'd be interesting to see how you respond to that now because it was a great answer that you gave me back then. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what your take is on it now. You know, yeah, label, label the grand tours. What are they as people? What sort of personalities would they have? So you want me to talk about a grand tour as a person? Well, just just you know, what are the differences yeah. between them? Because you know, like yeah, I, yeah, I've yeah. got an idea of which. Well, one I, I can. Giro, Joe Pesci. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. What, what type of people would they be? Not rather, you know, it's not one's Brad Pitt and other ones, buddy. Um, yeah. Someone else, but yeah, yeah. What what well, would they I'll be? Start, I'll start in order. I'll start in order. So Giro is yeah. usually first. So <clears throat> Giro is your real, your real honest person, super passionate. Um, you feel good around them. Um, they're authentic. You know, the way they speak, the people speak on the side of the roads. They know all about you. They've done the research. They're you just have a good feeling around them. The atmosphere is great. It's wonderful. Um, probably the best scenery. Um, and there's always a bit of spice in the race in this person. <laughs> it's got ups, it's got its downs, but, you know, they're not bad. You know, you've got some, you know, it's got a bit of snow, but that's okay. And then, you know, you've got some rain, that's okay. But then you've got some beautiful stages and you've got your traditional hotels where you have the family hotels and the best food. They cook the best food, the best food. Mm. Um, so that's one of them. The other one is just a pure businessman that cares nothing else except for... Um, To be visible, to be out there. Um, they don't care if you're sick. They don't care if you're not well. They don't care if you've got problem, problems at home. They want you at work first thing in the morning, finish late at night. They don't care if you're tired. Um, you work with superficial people on the side of the streets who love to be there but don't know why they're there. They're there because... They've been told it's a big event, it's a happy event, where a very small percentage of them actually know who you are. Um, and there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure to do well, and you have to perform then. And the last one is just uh, uh, an Australian you meet at Port Douglas Cairns on the beach, just relaxed mode. <laughs> <laughs> when do you want to go for the bike ride? Whenever you want. We can start in the afternoon. How fast will we go? We take it easy. At the end, we go a bit harder. And you, you see some fans on the street. It's not, not, not so common, but the fans love you also. They know who you are. They know who you are. And the food also is, is <clears throat> super nice, super nice food. And, and, he likes everyone. He gives everyone a chance. Everyone has a chance at the Velta. And if he didn't have a good first two friends before, this guy's going to do something good to you. You know what? So 
if if now if I go back to to that time at Cadell's race, the answers were you haven't, which is great. It hasn't changed. You said the Giro is a passionate sports fan. The Tour de France is just a businessman, and the 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 Vuelta is a sports fan on holidays. That's exactly the way you described it. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. No, that's great. That's awesome. It's interesting this year, uh, um, Adam, on, on, the, on, the, on all the racing at the Grand Tours, we were talking about the last couple of days with different people. The old days of uh, riding along and hanging a chat in the bunch just didn't happen. Uh, who were the two riders? That it, was, uh, it was George and um, Rory. I can't remember. Uh, and Rory. They said, we haven't actually said hello in the whole Vuelta because they, there's just no chance. So I think I look back at the three Grand Tours and there was only two stages where they did any piano. It was just every day was fire the gun and was down the road for every stage of every Grand Tour. Yeah, it's like, really getting like that now. It's, um, yeah, it's a bit crazy. It's, it's, it's yeah, I remember telling people, yeah, I was chatting to, you know, this and this writer and, and non-cycling fans like, you have time to chat. I was like, we chat all the time where, yeah, especially this year, there's very little chatting. It's just a lot more racing, a lot more pressure. And I, I do think it's because of coronavirus. So, you know, like I think I've done maybe 35 races this year or 40, so I haven't raced much. Um, so, you know, every race is important and, I think guys are just giving the absolute maximum just to – a lot of guys don't have contracts for next year too. So, you know, it's always race on. And, you know, with the sports directors in the car, like like I've heard some things like, you know, brakes up the road and you're on a climb and it's like a four-kilometre climb and the brakes up the road and they might have like three minutes and then it'll be like, okay, one of you jump across. I'm just like – like I like I do, I do the math in my head. <laughs> if they're going 30 kilometers an hour which is a type of that climb i gotta do 60 kilometers an hour and you know that's going to take me like you know eight minutes or something i can't do that on the climb i just can't i don't think anyone in the world can do that on the climb and if you don't get over the top he's got a down like super fast downhill i was like like you know the sports tricks are like this they just think anything's possible and it's just yeah it's um yeah. a lot of pressure a lot of pressure and every every grand tour this year has been a lot of pressure to do well so yeah, it's a lot less talking. Hey, we were talking about it before. How did the uh, journey with creating your own cycling shoes come about? I mean, did you Google it? <laughs> What'd you do? How'd, how'd you get into it? Um, I had a problem with my my. Um, this, I don't know if you can see it. This, yeah, yeah. See, see this lump here. Yep. Yeah, so that's a bone sticking out, and that's where in the olden days the ratchet system used to be there. And that would put a lot of pressure on that bone. And um, I, like I used to have a three Velcro shoe strap, and that was working fine. Um, but then when the the new belt, the new ratchet systems came out, it put too much pressure there. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to make my own shoes. <clears throat> Can't be so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a nightmare. It was actually at the start. I tried and I failed, and I just, you know, I I couldn't do it. And then I had like six months off, and then I had a different idea, and I tried to apply that, and I made the sole. And the first shoe, okay. I had one of the first ones that I had, where the 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 cleat was made from carbon, so the the, the cleat and the sole is one piece. So this is all one piece just for lightness and, and, you know, and that was really good. Um, and this is like a monocoque. So a monocoque is, you know, you do it in one time. So this is like 
Like he could really kill someone with this. And the trick was the biggest trick was is you know when you I don't know if you've ever seen the inside of a cycling frame. You see the 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 the, the backing bag um, tear off material. It's not nice. It's not pretty. The inside of a cycling frame. The outside of a cycling frame is beautiful because it's come from the mold. But the problem with a cycling shoe is the inside has to be perfect, really perfect for your foot. So the mold is really, you know, it's a male mold. And, um, and the outside has to look good because everyone bases it on that. So then I did um, I did more onion style. And onion style is when you do like carbon and you put another layer of carbon on top, like you glue it on top afterwards. This, this, is, this is a big no-no. When you learn composites, it's a big no-no. You should do it in one piece. But the glues are getting better. And it's a lot easier. So, um, so yeah, so basically I just made a mold of my foot in orthotics. And so I didn't need orthotics in my shoes. So I saved weight there. And the sole was my orthotics. And then I <clears throat> took it to a company to do fabric at the top. And this was going to take three or four weeks. I thought I'd make it from carbon. Couldn't be so hard, but it was. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, basically, um, any hot spot I just added to the mold. So you see all the bones sticking out and everything. Um, it's a bit hard to see on the camera, but you can see, uh, like, it's really the shape of my foot. This is one of the metro bones there. Um, you really see the shape of the foot there. Um, and, yeah, I pulled it off and got them super light, super comfortable because it's more my foot. I even went to the extremes, <clears throat> so I have no bolts. This is Kevlar and carbon wrapped. So just with this, I saved 27 grams of weight. <laughs> which is, no, because what, what happened was I got them so light. I got them down to around 75 grams, and I was like, how can I make them lighter? Right. And just the bolt was 27 grams. And by me um, using carbon and Kevlar, like I'd flat uh, it and then just thread it, <clears throat> To save 27 grams off the shoe is impossible. That's one third of the shoe. But to save it here, it was like, okay, that's a good point. And then I changed the ratchet system. So this is a 3D printed part that I made on my 3D printer, which is just there. Um, so, yeah, I just, just slowly twinkled it over the years. And now they're like paper light, super light. I don't know if you can see maybe uh, with the lights. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're amazing. Yeah, you see through it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can see through it. Like, yeah. um, it's, yeah. like this top top layer is 35 gram per square meter cloth. So this is about as light, as thick as your bike shorts material. So it's not thick. Right. Super thin yeah. at the top. Um, just reinforced with epoxy to stick it all together and um, – yeah, I like them. Actually, I really, they're super comfortable. A lot of people think they they get hot, <clears throat> but the truth is they get super cold because they're so thin, there's no insulation. So your normal traditional cycling shoe is like a space boot. You know, they have all that padding around and everything. Mm. Where these are paper thin, so I have serious problems in the cold. When it rains, my feet freeze. Just <clears throat> There's just no insulation. That's the, the bad thing. In the heat, no problem at all. They're still thin. Didn't you have a problem with... um? So you used to run inner soles because it calls, you know, like I guess tradition is you need a nice soft inner sole so it makes it comfortable over hours and hours. But you went to a race one day and you forgot the inner soles. You had to race without yeah. them. Yes. <clears throat> and yeah. this, this opened my eyes up quite a lot because I went to Down Under, Australia, and I, I forgot to bring all the inner soles for the shoes. And I usually carry three pairs because 
the, the new ones are so thin here that if you put them in a suitcase um, and you close the suitcase wrong, you'll crack the top. So I always brought spare pairs with me just in case. It only happened once because at the end of the race, we're just trying to, you know, throw everything in the suitcase and jump on it and that. Um, yeah, and I forgot the inner soles. And it's just, uh, it's just a material which I don't have here, but just not nice padding. So I forgot it and I, I did the race without it. And I, and I realized then how much we lose just with the inner sole. Every time you push, it just absorbs that power to make it more comfortable. And because the sole is really molded to my foot, I had no problem not to race without it. So I stopped racing with inner soles and I, I felt like there was um, more powers getting transferred from my foot directly to the, the, the pedal. So do you, do you actually sell the shoes? You, are they are they you know available? On the, I will. On, I will. Yeah. Next year I will. It's it's a, you know it's a bit of a time thing, and um, you know a lot of people. I've seen some companies try and copy. Um, <clears throat> like with you know a, a lot of companies were doing. Uh, you put your foot from the outside in and I do inside in and then I put the ratchet system underneath. Now a lot of companies are doing that. Um, so a lot of companies are copied. And the thing is, the reason, you know, why they haven't hit, like the, their shoes are around the 300 grams, um, uh, some of them are 250 grams. But it's just <clears throat> the amount of time, the amount of waste material to make them, it's a lot of waste material. Um, like the price of carbon is, is not is not the problem. It's the price of time and waste material. <clears throat> you know, like it's for me, the 2,000 euro, I wouldn't do it. It's just not worth it. And then you've got to find, you know, people. Okay, there are people that have offered, you know, six to 8,000 for a pair. Um, so, really? like, I like, yeah. yeah Surely well. you give Scotty a discount for being a former pro. Yeah, please, please. <laughs> I, I've got a bit of weight around the guts to take off before I worry about the shoes. <laughs> I'm going to speak to some guys next in the telephone. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah it's right. amazing. It's, fa it's fascinating stuff. Well, listen, I, I could be your representative down Geelong with the old farts uh, riding group, mate, if you do me a special okay. deal. Yeah, okay. <laughs> now, now, Adam, one question we ask on most of our guests, particularly the ones that have, have climbed to the top, but also overcome a lot of adversity. We often say that we're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, a lot of people have been through tough times. What are the things that you've learned and lessons that you can pass on for people to climb out of a, a dark period and to get themselves back on track to, to achieve the goals that they want to achieve. You're talking more about athletes or just people in general? No, I think people in general because we've got a lot of people that, you know, ride bikes, a lot of non-cycling people tune in as well. But, like, any general lessons for people that, um, you know, particularly in 2020 that they can use to uh, get through, you know, tough periods? Um, my, my, my answer <clears throat> might be a bit more critical. Uh, not critical. Uh, how do I say it? More, um, uh, I'll just say it. <laughs> I'll just say, say it. Uh, the lockdown we had the first two months is the, the best two months of my life. Um, and and uh, I'm very fortunate. I, I live in a house, which is, you know, I have space. I have my workshop downstairs and I can do anything here. And I always said if I was a superhero and I could have one superpower, it would be to pause time. And... Um, and what I found is in lockdown is everything was paused in my line. I had all my deadlines were finished, all the races were postponed, everything, and I could really just focus on me, myself, and 
um, finishing all the things that I should have finished around the house, fixing things. Um, I had friends that were um, spending time with family, kids, children, watching them grow, which they never did before. Um, I know a lot of people take it, take this for granted, but I really saw families come together um, during different activities. You know, you can't, you know, go to the cinema anymore. You can't go to uh, festivals, things like that. It's more personal time. And I think a lot of people have lost um, appreciation for these things. And I think this has brought families and relationships closer. It has destroyed some also. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's always going to be light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and I think this is this is a good lesson, I think, for everyone. I think everyone in life should sort of hit rock, rock, rock bottom to really appreciate what they had before and what they will have in the future. Um, and, and it's true. We have, we have a lot of, we, we don't appreciate a lot of things that we do have right now that we don't need. And we, 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 we live in a society where everything's disposable and we just want to, you know, have the newest and greatest. And I think during this pandemic, everyone has learned that these values are uh, totally different. Families first, family time, um, and time is important. Time is, well, for me especially, my, my time is um, very important. And it has given me more time and more time to do the, the projects I want to and spend time with people that are more important to me. So, yes, there are a lot of negatives. Yes, there are people losing their jobs. And, yes, there's um, some very difficult moments for some people. Um, but, you know, uh, like in every situation, there's always um, new door openings and there's going to be, <clears throat> you know, we, we lived in a, let's say a pre-COVID time where festivals are everything and movies were okay and restaurants, things like that. The world has to change to adopt. And for this to, to do that, there will be jobs, new jobs coming up. There'll be new types of living ways in a sense, like we're not going to have mass. So I do think it's, um, things are tough now, but I think things are, are going to get better. That's for sure. Mate, we've got a few more comments. Uh, Stuart McIntosh says, several weeks ago on the detour, I asked Rupert Guinness, who were the most approachable cyclists he has interviewed over the years. His answer were Adam Hansen and Laurent Fignon, two all-time greats. So much love online, fascinating cyclists. Uh, what a great guy. Um, and people have just been blown away by your honesty on this chat. You know, love the honesty in his chat, brutally honest opinion, uh, so great to hear this honest talking from Adam. Mate, it's it's rare, I think, in, in this day and age where people can actually have honest conversations, uh, particularly about their career, about sports, about tough periods, but um, it, it's awesome. You just don't see it enough. And for us, yeah, we, we just want to share stories and insights, but, mate, it's been so fascinating and, and it's been one of the highlights of the year for me, for sure. Yeah, enjoyed it. It's been great, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Sensational. So um, anything you want to add before we let Adam go, boys? Um, well, I did. Well, I, oh, sorry. I was going to – there's one thing it probably should have talked about earlier. If it's quick, but I noticed that uh, you've written the software program that Lotto Sidal used, and I think some of the other teams are using it too for logistics and all of that. How did that come about? 
um, <clears throat> there was Amiga Pharma Lotto, so that was 2011, and this team was divided. So Amiga went to Quickstep and Lotto started their own team. And we were using a software that was owned by Omega Pharma. Uh, they owned the licensing right. And when we went to Lotto, I offered if they would like me to ride their logistics software. And they sort of looked at me like, can you? I was like, yeah, for sure. This is, I used to be a programmer before and this is, this is something really easy. And, and why, why would you want to do this? And I said, because I hated your last one. I like, I hated the last one. Because in the last one, you would have a flight, let's say on a Sunday, uh, sorry, race on a Sunday. And your flights are normally Sunday evening too. So Monday when you wake up to check your flights, because that race was the day before down to your program, that race is now deleted from the app, right? So you'd be at the airport having no idea what the flight was. And then um, for me, it was like this is like mm. the person that wrote this had no idea. So I um, sat down with the logistics lady, Valerie in uh, Lotto Sadol, and I said, how about I write it from a writer's point of view, what I want to see, what the writers want to see. And I do the back end exactly how you want to import the data. So it was really a win-win for everyone because we represented the data how we want to present it, fast, simple. And then she had the uh, – I wrote it so the back end for her so she could enter it super fast, all keyboard orientated. I made shortcuts and everything so you don't go mouse, keyboard, mouse, keyboard, fast entering. And it's been working like a breeze ever since 2012. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> sensational <Awesome>. sensational <laughs> what, you write what a couple so, for me <laughs> you're uh, two things for me mate so you you are doing the croc trophy next year so when is that and if that means you've got to come back to australia with the covid situation so is that likely to happen that's the first question the second is what will be your first ironman um my first ironman was meant to be portugal which was on the 7th of november that was cancelled um so i just missed that one um, there is an Ironman in Dubai. They haven't released a date yet. This will go forward, so that'll be mid-January. Um, and that'll be half Ironman, though, but I'll do anything um, at the moment. Um, and the other question is the Croc Trophy. From memory, it's around October the 21st. I don't know the official date yet, so don't quote me on that. It's around, um, around yeah, October. Um, the, the quarantine... Uh, to get back in Australia is a bit of a mess. I'd like to go back to Australia now, actually. I've got some free time. Well, I've got some projects I must finish here, but apart from that, I like to spend Christmas there. And just yesterday, I was at the Australian Embassy in Prague getting a new passport, and the lady there asked me, so are you trying to get back to Australia? And I was like, no, nah, at this moment, no. And then she was like, do you need help with this? And I've never used university ambassador for help, like ever. Um, but like I've got my own set up here and never needed them. And I was like, no, nah, you know, things are okay. And then she goes, you know, there's 70 people stuck in Prague at the moment trying to get home. I was like, really? Why? And then she goes, yeah, because they've capped the number of Australians going back. So because of the, you know, you've got to spend two weeks in a hotel and pay 2800 and something dollars. And, um, and yeah, if you've got a family member, it can be 3000 don't quote me, 3500 And, yeah, you're stuck in a hotel and that. Um, so... What I've been told is they're only sending business class tickets over because airlines are sort of like, well, if we can only send 30 people per flight, we're only going to send business class. And unless people are paying business class, we don't put them on a plane. Um, so for me, it's more I like to go. Um, I know there's a lot of racing happening at the moment in the tri-scene now. So in this sense, I would really like to go. 
But on the other side is I'm just a bit afraid to, because I don't have an airport here where I can fly directly to Australia. See, if I was near Frankfurt and they had direct flights and I knew I was getting there, then, yeah, I'd get a ticket. And if they bump me, I'd just keep staying at home and doing it. But for me to fly to Australia, I'd have to fly to Frankfurt. And if they bump me there and I'm stuck in Frankfurt for two weeks, um, this is something I, I don't want to do. So I'm sort of just... You know, crossing my fingers and hoping that, um, that you know, at the moment the COVID situation in Australia is very good and maybe they might be less restrictive. I heard rumours that you guys are opening the borders to New Zealand soon, so I'll see how that goes. And then I'll see, and also Japan, maybe in the, in the, in the, short, in the short-term future. So I'll see how that goes. And, you know, I might just fly through Japan. Um, I know that sounds horrible. <laughs> But that's that's this is this is the crazy thing about you know these all these restrictions that like last week I was in UAE for some work related um, things and um, I was flying to Krakow, Poland because um, I live just across the border from Poland and the lady at the airport's like, have you read the the, the restrictions going into Poland? I was like, uh, no, but I thought all EU members can come back to EU. And they said no flights from UAE can enter Poland, right? It was like strict no. But I, I transited through Amsterdam. So I was like, okay. So I just took the flight, went to Amsterdam, filled out the form into Poland, just walked out. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, they're not taking direct flights, but you know, it's I came through Amsterdam, that's okay. So I'm a bit confused with this. You still declare it. I still declare it on the paper. But it's sort of like, what's the difference between flying direct or flying just through Amsterdam, you know? And with yeah. the Australian thing with Japan, you know, I don't know how this works. I do have I do have to go to Japan for some work with Limo. So if I'm there and I can get to Australia, um, and this is sort of January, February. Um, yeah, if I can get to Australia, I, will. I would like to go to Australia. Um, I like to go before Christmas, obviously, and for the crop trophy. I'm not worried about it. Um, last one for me, Adam. Uh, we've talked about on this show all the success you've had on the bike, you know, the 20 uh, Grand Tours in a row, stage winner Giro for Welta, National Time Trial, the Crop Trophy, but you've also done a lot of stuff off the bike. Looking back at your career, uh, what are you most proud of? Oh, everything. <laughs> um, you know, I survived. I did it. I, I really didn't believe I could be a professional cyclist. And, you know, to walk away with, you know, all those highlights you just said, super happy, super proud. I really didn't believe I could be professional. I really didn't believe I could win a stage in a Grand Tour or do so many Grand Tours. Um, but, you know, I think my main highlights were definitely days working with, you know, Andre Greifel, um, definitely with him when we had, you know, him, Greg Henderson, uh, Marcel Seberg, myself in the lead-out trains, just really dominating there. Then just having a team victory. I really like these team victories, you know. Like, we were doing stages in the tour. I remember doing stages in the tour and, like, there'll be a guy in front. We'd be just about to start a train. I know I'd have to start it. And then I sort of, like, look back and go, okay, should we go left or right? And I turn, left or right, Marcel? And he'd be like, left or right, Yugi? And he'd be right, left or right, Greg? And Greg's like, <laughs> left, left. And I just go left, we go, I go Max and swing off, Marcel, Max and swing off, Yugi, Max and swing off, Greg, Max and swing off. And Andre would just 
that's it. (laughs) These team moments are so nice because you really felt part of the team. And this is what I've always enjoyed, you know, really being part of the team and these team successes. For sure, winning by yourself is is nice, but I I like helping people and just being, you know, when it is a team sport and, yeah, when you win like this and you know you were part of that win and every other guy was part of that win is something very special. Uh, great stuff, mate. Well, so as we said, stuff. it has been a sensational chat. We really appreciate your time and, and we wish you all the best with the Ironman endeavours, everything else you're doing off the bike. You're going to be a, a huge success, mate, and I can't wait to see you on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I think you're going to take out the top prize. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks for your time. Thanks, hey, Adam. Fantastic, mate. Cheers, mate. Wow. We say it a lot on this show, but what an absolute legend. That was yeah. one of the most fascinating two hours yep. um, I've seen in a, in a cycling interview for sure. Now, Johnny, before we go, you've got to do a plug for Mitchelton. Play the bike exchange ad, and you can have a final takeaways. Johnny, you got your script? No. Oh, well, just wing it. <laughs> Just wing it. You say the script every night. Mitchelton, escape to the Gambi. Yeah, yeah, but I'd like to do it. I like, I like the script because it's... Uh, uh, it oh, we, we had such a good oh. show. We had such a good show. Yep. Mitchelton, Australia's favourite winery. <laughs> In the unique... At the Goulburn Valley, you can relax. There's a happy couple walking out of the uh, of the wine cellar, <laughs> and we'll go off the pictures. Go oh off no! The pictures. Okay, you can there's stay an in absolutely amazing uh, Mitchelton Hotel with the, with the wonderful pool, and the rooms are just yeah uh, exquisite. There's a happy couple just coming waiting for uh, coming out of the day spa, which is amazing. Of course, you the Muse Restaurant. Wonderful uh, restaurant, the, the wonderful wines from the wine cellar, um, and of course the amazing uh, um, Aboriginal art gallery, where there is, and there it is, of course, the ten thousand dollar Toyota Land Cruiser with the one point five no, it's gone over <laughs> the two point one million dollar paint job. There we go. <laughs> it's going to get to one billion dollars. Uh, quick word from our great Macy by at Bike Exchange. Look at this bike. You think it's just a bike, right? But it's not. It's a bike. 374 people are looking at. This guy, this girl, them, all looking at it. People from here, there, and wherever this is. People that are looking for a bike. Or just a piece of it. Amateurs, semi-amateurs, and pro-amateurs. This guy wants this bike, but with this crank and these bars. This could be the perfect match, but not this one. This girl has a bike to sell, and thousands of people might purchase it. Eyes on bikes help grow small businesses. His, hers, yours, and the latest data and insights help those businesses keep moving. We are the world's number one bike marketplace, with over 500,000 products and 900 brands, where buyers and sellers are brought together in a place where a bike is never just a bike. Bike Exchange, where the world buys, sells, learns, and rides. 
Uh, before we go, boys, we, this is record territory. We all, we've almost cracked two hours for the show. Never thought it'd be done. I always said, short and sharp, boys, half an hour, in and out. How can you, um, how can you without that? Yeah, there's no way. That, that would take me four or five hours to unpack all the things oh. that stood out from that interview. That was, yeah. I was so appreciative for just how honest he was. Um, particularly with what happens and, and the insight he was able to give people, the politics behind closed doors. Because as he said, and when he was doing the analogy of how it all works in the sport with, you know, riders and then the teams and then the race organisers and the UCI and all all that breakdown, such a fascinating insight. Well, it gave me a lot of uh, uh, insight and knowledge into the uh, the professional um, CPA or whatever it's called, the the uh, the union, and because uh, they've been copying a bit uh, of flack from from riders, but we don't know all the things that have to happen. When you hear someone like uh, Adam talk about it, you understand it a lot better. Mm, definitely. Uh, anything before we go, that's Scotty? Thing. Like you're talking about, he's being honest when he took. When he talks about the CPA, you know that what he's saying is true and honest. He's not just trying to, to pad it so that it sounds better for his group and his organisation. Yeah. He's putting yeah. it all on the table and you've got to take it as, it as it comes because it's the way it is. So really appreciate yeah. that. It was great. Yeah. I, I almost took the piss at one moment and said, well, funny you mentioned David Miller. He joins us now. Anyway, on that, as we say, the key to um, getting a heads up on all the interviews we do moving forward is you've got to follow us on social. You've got to follow us on YouTube. You've got to um, click the notifications, follow us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Detour Podcast. And if you tick the notifications, you will get a, a beep every time we go live. You won't miss the show. And you can get us obviously on Apple Podcasts and everywhere you get your audio podcasts. And on that, Scotty looks like his face is frozen. So that is a cue for us to go. <laughs> it has uh, to. Uh, yeah. uh, was that a that big smile? I was going to ask him about We never asked him about the jerseys. He's got new jerseys there. We never asked him about them. Well, you ask him now. Scotty, what do you think of the jersey? You look pretty proud <laughs> he, of them. He loves them. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll leave it there. As we said, follow us on the socials and you won't miss a, another second of the, Oh, and Scotty's gone. You won't miss another second of the action. We'll see you again soon.